0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. At this point in life, the thing that I am most passionate about is making sure that the next generation has what it needs to continue the fight and continue to focus on the things that will create a better world.
1: everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is a Chicago treasure who sadly I have to say is leaving us. Helene Gale, CEO of the Chicago Community Trust. I have been an admirer of yours for a long time. It is an honor to have you here. Thank you. Honor to be here. After five years as head of the trust, an extraordinary philanthropy here in Chicago, one of the oldest and best endowed. You are capping your career by becoming president of Spelman College, the historic black college for women in Atlanta, Georgia. How exactly did they lure you away from us? And what about that job made it so attractive to you to the point where you're leaving your adopted city behind?
0: Well, I tell you, um, you know, every, every decision I have, Ever made in my career has always been tough because I throw myself into my work and its people. Um, but I will say this was an incredibly tough one. Uh, one because you know I thought that uh, at this point in my life this was very likely my last job, um, and 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 two you know I um, did feel like <clears throat> I still had things that. I would have liked and gotten done. But, you know, on the other hand, um, at this point in life, the thing that I am most passionate about is making sure that the next generation has what it needs to continue the fight and continue to focus on the things that will create a better world. And, you know, I just felt if I had that opportunity to do this and that, in some ways uniquely able to do it as a African-American woman myself, who has you know, devoted my career to creating positive social change, you know, that um, I, I should use my talents and skills to be able to make the next big difference, hopefully. So, you know, it, was, um, it, it spoke to a, a passion. It spoke to who I am as a person. And in many ways, it's a continuation of the work that we started here at the trust around closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap. Because what better way to make sure that people have what they need than to make sure that they have an education that gives them the skills uh, to have a career where they can contribute to society.
1: During a wonderful recent interview with Brandis Friedman before the City Club, you described this transition as going from one side of the check to the other. What do you mean by that? I think it means that you're going to you know at the trust donations poured in. You got to dole out the money. You got to play Santa Claus, a wonderful position in this job at Spelman. A big part of your responsibility will be fundraising, like most college and university presidents need to do. How's that going to work for you? What a change will it be? And what set of skills will you have to tap into? Yeah um and then
0: that is exactly what i meant I, and um uh, and i this is the second time now that i have done this i was at the bill and melinda gates foundation and then went to run a nonprofit care um where my one of my chief jobs was in fact to raise resources you know i i, I often say that in some ways giving money away is as hard if not harder than raising money. Um, Giving money away means that, you know, you end up telling a lot of people who have incredibly important um, organizations or ideas, you have to tell some of them no. Telling people no when you have resources is, I find, emotionally difficult because you know how much need there is in the world. On the other hand, you know, I'm basically, you know, in many ways, I'm an advocate. I I talk about the things that matter to me. And fundraising is is advocacy um, with people who also believe in your mission. You fundraise with people who have resources, who may or may not be in jobs that can realize their dreams, values, and, and mission, and you give them a vehicle for doing it. And so, you know, I accept the fact that a large part of my role and one that I'm passionate about is raising resources for the school because I want to make sure that Spelman is in a position where any young woman who is able to get admitted does not have to make a choice about whether or not she enters that school because of financial need. So um, I return to the world of fundraising. Um, but I, I do that understanding the importance of what that means and what that can mean to the life of, uh, a a young girl.
1: How many of its 2,200 or so students are on scholarship and full scholarship? And what is the cost of a Spelman education?
0: Oh, you know, I should know that off the top of my head, but I think if I'm correct, about 50% of, um, Spellman students are Pell eligible, which means they fall below um, a, you know, a level of income that allows them for federal dollars. Um, so there's a large portion of students who are in financial need. And you know, I heard a lot of stories about the hardships and young women who have to drop out of school and some who come back and some who don't. So those are the things you know, I really want to make sure that we can do a better job, not only of having financial aid available, but also making sure that the school is as affordable as possible. Are there other sources of revenue? For example, uh, Spellman recently started what they're calling e spellman So, you know, online learning that is bringing in revenue. And I think thinking about other revenue models so that a school is not totally dependent only on, you know, tuition dollars to be able to uh, finance the operations of the school. So I want to look at both affordability as well as can we have more resources to be able to provide scholarships.
1: Juneteenth is coming up on Monday. Earlier this week, you wrote an op-ed in the Tribune advocating for reparations. You mentioned something that was brought up last week at only the second meeting of the Chicago City Council subcommittee on reparations, and that is guaranteed basic income. At that meeting, they talked about a program specifically targeted at African-Americans in Chicago and black men in particular who are vulnerable to either becoming victims or perpetrators of violence. Why should we do that in Chicago and what form should it take?
0: And sorry, Fran, why should we do reparations or why should we do guaranteed income?
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the guaranteed income first. Yes, sure. You know, I think, one, because all the data
0: um, that has followed pilots of guaranteed income show that they work, that for families who are living uh, very financially precarious lives, that having money, uh, that is guaranteed, even if it's a small, what we would consider relatively small amount, five hundred dollars makes a huge difference. And people are able to. Uh, in a session we had not too long ago, talking to people who potentially could be recipients, they said, you know, if nothing else, what it does is give me a peace of mind, and it, it I know that I can pay for some basic things that I've been putting on the back burner, that I don't have to make choices between whether I get my medication or whether I feed my children. And so I think it's that sense of kind of basic core security that most of us, uh, many, you know, many of us live with every day. We know that if a tire goes bad on our car, we can get a new tire. We know that if there is a catastrophic illness in our family, we've got insurance that can cover it. But imagine what it means if you don't have some of those basic things that we take for granted and how insecure you feel and how that then has a ripple effect on the rest of your life. So we know it works. We know that people, when given um, a basic amount of money um, uh, a month, that they use it wisely. That they make smart choices. There was always a myth that you give people poor people money and they're going to use it on, uh, you know, irresponsible things. Well, sure, somebody might splurge and do something that uh, might not make sense one time, but by and large, people use resources in ways that are smart uh, that allow them to provide for basic needs and help them to get the next rung on that ladder that will allow them to continue towards a more stable financial future.
1: Well, the city is already doing a $31.5 million program for 5,000 families. Are you saying we ought to do another one as Cam Howard is advocating for Black men or just Blacks in particular? You know, he talked about the fact that because some of Months that the guaranteed basic income to replace it would have to be six to eight hundred and it would have to go on for at least two years. Are you advocating for another program specifically for African-Americans?
0: Oh, um, you know, this pilot is just starting and I think we need to give it a chance. And, you know, we're we're a part of a consortium of other foundations that are providing the resources to make sure that this is well-evaluated. I think we should evaluate this experience first um, and then think about how could it be expanded? You know, I think, uh, so I'm not advocating for any particular program. I think what I would like us to think about is how do we really look at uh, what is it going to take to have populations that have been left out of economic opportunity get the start that they need because we know that if we look at the you know the statistics we're not closing the wealth gap the wealth gap is growing and it's growing because you know people who have wealth it gets compounded people who have lack of economic uh wealth that also gets compounded in a negative way. And so what we wanna do is to look at what are the possible options that could in fact break that cycle and give people the opportunity to start getting an economic foothold. So I hope that this pilot and it's being done both the city of Chicago, as well as Cook County, uh, both will be well evaluated. So we can think about what are the other options and how can they be targeted to the populations where the need is the greatest?
1: Well, you've talked about other forms of reparations like canceling student loan debt, federal support for career and technical education, and federal baby bonds, as you put it. What exactly is that? Yeah. So, the, so you know, and now just, just to back up and say, you
0: know, when I uh, wrote the article about uh, reparations, You know, I think the word reparations has scared people. And what I was trying to say is that, you know, what we want to do is to have programs that target those who are most financially unstable so that we can, in fact, break this cycle um, of the growing wealth gap and that we don't it doesn't need to be in the form of every person of African descent gets a check. There are many ways in which we can address the financial um, instability and be able to give people a brighter financial future. So baby bonds is one of those ways. What baby bonds do is to start a savings account, essentially, for children as they're born that can continue to grow, continue to get deposits put in and really, in some ways, mimic the intergenerational wealth that particularly white middle class has been able to create over time that oftentimes black and brown citizens have not had the opportunity to do. So can we create programs that allow for this kind of intergenerational um, transfer of resources to be able to give a cohort of, of young people a different opportunity, the ability to go to school, the ability to not go into debt uh, so that their future, they're not starting at a deficit. They're actually starting at a similar starting point as their white counterparts.
1: Can and should the city do
0: baby bonds? Well, you know, I think it, I think I think it's a, uh, these are the kinds of things that, you know, public policy needs to look at. Should it be at the city level? Should it be at the state level? You know, a lot of it depends on where the resources are and what revenue can be generated to be able to pay for these programs. Obviously, um, there will need to be increased revenue. Is it at the city level? Is it at the state level? Is it at the federal level? Or is it at all of those levels? But that's the kind of thing that I think we need to have serious public policy, look at what's the right way to put some of these things in place you know and I think they're both at the individual level, but they're also at the neighborhood level. How do we make sure that there's investment in our disinvested neighborhoods so that if you buy a home, your own, your home actually increases in value versus um, decreases in value. And you know, so I think there's a lot of ways in which we need to think about how do we put all of these tools together in a comprehensive way? Because the way that we're going, um, is not going to get us to be a economically equitable society
1: any thought on what could be the revenue source for baby bonds a tax on formula or what could what could we what could we tax diapers <laughs> uh, well you know i I must say I, um,
0: I have not thought of all the the options um, you know a lot of the baby bond discussion has been. Uh, at the federal level. And it has talked about, you know, increasing taxes, for instance, that could that could pay for it. But I think we need to think about some mix of public sector dollars. Perhaps there can be private sector dollars. Perhaps there could be taxes, luxury taxes on things that could then uh, be used for programs like baby bonds. But I think, you know, again, I think some of the best minds who are really looking at these issues can come together and, and let's look at a, a range of ways in which these things can be done. But I think that the biggest thing is let's start talking about these now. Let's start talking about big programs that could actually have impact at a population level because so often we think about the individual level interventions which can make a huge difference for individuals it can give hope uh, to to communities and neighborhoods, but it doesn't ultimately change systems, and that's the level at which I think we need to be talking.
1: Yeah, during your time in Chicago, you have focused heavily on bridging what you call the racial wealth disparity, which is tied in part to home ownership, also the incredible gap. In life expectancy between Black and White Chicagoans, I think the average is nine years. Far more in some neighborhoods. How much progress have you made on that monumental task? And what is your greatest regret as you walk away from Chicago?
0: Well, I think um, you know we went into this with the full knowledge that first of all, um, this was a long this was a long term effort. Uh, We developed a 10-year strategic plan around closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap. Um, I would imagine even in 10 years, we will not have fully realized all of the goals that we have uh, around equalizing um, wealth within the Chicago region, but hopefully in 10 years, we'll have demonstrated what are some of the things that can make a difference both in terms of how we use our grant dollars, but also how we look at the policies that that can make a difference. Um, I imagine it, it, so number one, you know this is a long term effort. Two, you know this is not a, this is not an effort for one organization. You know, we uh, are working very closely with other philanthropic partners, with the business sector, with the uh, public sector, the government. Uh, really looking at how do we use our resources in an integrated way, because it's going to take all of us to be able to make a difference. And I think, you know, one of the things I I hope we have done is to change the conversation. And, you know, people are now talking more about the issue of the wealth gap and recognizing how, you know, in a region that is, you know, essentially two-thirds black and brown, you can't expect that Chicago is going to continue to move forward if you're holding back, you know, two thirds of your population. So I think there's a different dialogue around this issue now. You know, um, regrets, I guess I always have regret that the work is never done. Um, You know, that said, I never expected that this would be something that in five years, you know, we would have it. Finished. I do hope that in five years, in ten years, we will in, we will have given people in a community a sense of hope that it is possible to bring change, and that's you know I think that's what we're all here for. Uh, you know, I have taken on tough issues, uh, preventing the spread of HIV, ending global poverty. Now looking at this issue of closing the racial and ethnic wealth gap. None of them are totally finished. But in all situations, you know, I have seen where people coming together and believing that they can create change does make a difference and it does move things forward. And that's my hope.
1: You're a doctor. You've spent a year, you were, you were a pediatrician, you spent time at the CDC, at CORE, uh, you headed up the AIDS, uh, I guess, AIDS coordinator and chief of HIV for USAID. How did all of that help you when the coronavirus hit Chicago and, and disproportionately had blacks and Hispanics bearing the brunt? I think I've
0: learned from um, my experience in other pandemics um, how important it is to um, come together, be able to to quickly mobilize resources for communities, and how important it is to, to recognize early on who are the communities that are the most hard hit. Most often that tends to be the communities that were already um, experiencing health inequality. And so how can we quickly make sure that we're meeting the needs of those communities? And I, when I look at COVID as an example, we mobilized with other partners once there was a vaccine to making sure that that vaccine got to the communities that were at greatest risk um, and often communities that had the greatest mistrust of uh, health and and health systems. You know, it is gratifying to see that uh, as this pandemic has moved forward, in fact, the rates of vaccines and vaccination in black and brown populations has in in many places eclipsed that of the white population. So, you know, I think what I learned uh, is, you know, if you have a plan and you have intentionality, you can make a difference. But you have to go in with your eyes open, you have to you know look at the data so that you know where you put the greatest focus, and that you focus your greatest resources where the need is 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 greatest.
1: Did you help the city set up those rapid response teams?
0: We were yeah, we were involved with that. That was those were actually set up by the city. We pro- helped to provide some resources. And then we worked alongside of them so that the activities that we were doing that we could that we were funding were, in fact, very much integrated with what the city was doing.
1: For someone who is not originally from Chicago, you certainly have become part of this city's fabric. What has surprised you pleasantly and unpleasantly about your adopted cities and what city and what makes it hardest for you to leave?
0: Well, I will say. um, This is perhaps the warm, the most warm and welcoming city I have ever lived in. And, you know, I was so warmly welcomed and, you know, very quickly felt like this was home. This is a city that cares deeply about itself. People love their city. Uh, People come together for their city. It also has one of the most, I think, thriving um, civic communities that uh, really wants to do what's right for the city. The business community is incredibly involved and I think a very collaborative philanthropic community. And so I, you know, I um, I felt right at home very quickly. You know, I'm a native of Buffalo. When, when I say Buffalo, most people think New York. Buffalo is really more Midwestern. It, you know, than it is um, East Coast. And so in some ways, perhaps the Buffalo Girl and me felt very comfortable here in this Midwestern city. Uh, you know, what I will miss the most is just what uh, I love the most, which is the people of Chicago. Uh, it is a beautiful city. I love Lake Michigan. I you know, I love the great restaurants. I love the culture and the arts and everything else that makes this such a great city. But ultimately, it's about the people. And that's what I will you know, miss the most.
1: You've also said that, of course, as we know, the city is so segregated still. And much has been written and said about the exodus of the Black middle class from Chicago, uh, that much of it is being fueled by crime. And by the fact that Black families want what every family wants, they want a good education, they want to be safe, those that can are leaving Chicago, what is it going to take to turn all this around?
0: Well, you know, I think because people really do so love their city, if we can make neighborhoods safe, if we can give people the opportunity to have jobs, if we have can help people, um, be able to have home ownership, if we can help small business owners be able to develop and grow their businesses, if we can have neighborhoods that currently have vacant uh, lots that end up uh, attracting crime, if we can you know, work on how to revitalize neighborhoods where there's uh, empty buildings, if we can make the... People have what they need within their own neighborhoods, grocery stores, places for their children to play, uh, you know, all the safety and amenities that anyone wants for their family. I think if we're able to do those things, which is very much a part of what our strategy focuses on, I think we can get people back uh, because people love this city and they want to be here. And, you know, there was the prevailing idea that everybody was leaving and going to the South. Well, some are, but a lot of people are moving just across the border because they still want to be in Chicago. They still want to be near their families. They want to be in the cultures that they grew up in. So I just think if we can do a better job of giving people what they need to have the kinds of lives that we all want, that are safe, uh, convenient, that allow for recreation as well as jobs you know i think we can bring people back so you know i i'm i'm still a chicago optimist even with all the challenges that there are because i believe this is a city that has recreated itself multiple times and um, when put to the test i think chicago can do it again
1: a lot of banks and major companies talked a lot about equity and inclusion after the civil unrest that followed the death of George Floyd. But that talk has died down. And, uh, you know, you've talked about the fact that this kind of a sense of urgency cannot really be sustained. It's not possible. So how do you light that fire again? Well, you know, I think some. It's it, it's hard to...
0: Recreate the sense of urgency that came right after that. You know, we were, we were, COVID had already heightened our awareness of inequities. And then you have the, you know, I kind of say it was like the one two punch. You had COVID and then you had George Floyd, and you had COVID in the midst of, uh, you had George Floyd in the midst of COVID. So we were all sitting. Uh, at home, watching that video time and time again, um, I don't think that we will always carry that level of pain and urgency, even though I wish in some ways we would. But I think what happens is if if we start actions that have positive momentum, that positive momentum is serves it's in and of itself as a reinforcement. So we've been working with the business community, for instance, on an initiative that we call a 525 Move to Action. It was looking at a lot of the companies here who made wonderful statements after the, the murder of George Floyd and said, um, you know, your statements were great, but now what action will you put in place to be able to actually honor those statements. And so we've got you know a group of companies uh, over 25. We, we had set a goal of 25 because the anniversary is 525. Um, and we have more than 25 companies that are now working together as a network, really thinking about how they can change the way they do business that really furthers the goals of greater equity and racial justice. So I think that if we can have intentionality about continuing to move actions forward, those actions, you know, as everyone says, go from a moment to a movement. I think we can sustain that action, but we've got to continue to hold ourselves accountable or the moment will pass.
1: You've talked about the need to stay the course, don't be rigid. Test and learn. Figure out what works. Put more resources into it for a decade or two, and stay consistent. Yes. What is? How do you want to see that philosophy be put into action here?
0: Um. You know, just just that. I I do think you know we're in difficult times. We're facing inflation. We're you know we've got uh, here in this area public safety issues that are. Um, you know, continuing to, to grow. We've got the, the wealth inequality. We've, you know, there's a lot of problems, I, but I think there are also a lot of solutions. And the biggest thing is staying the course because I've lived long enough now to see us go in cycles and have different phases and everyone comes up with different ideas. Let's build on success. And let's keep moving that forward. And let's do it in a way that um, actually creates sustained momentum. I think we just need to have a, stay in there long enough to get the kind of sustained momentum that then encourages people that, yes, something can be done. I'm incredibly heartened by what I see, you know, the big banks here in Chicago who are putting huge amount of dollars into disinvested neighborhoods. Um, you know, organizations that are coming together and working in partnerships in ways that they hadn't before. I think there's something going on here. I, you know, I do and I and, and I think that it is um, you know I think that there is a moment where we can have some real positive change here in the Chicago region. And as people often, you know, the, the the phrase, you know, the best way to tell the future is by creating it. You know, it's in our hands. We have the ability to make change happen.
1: Helene Gale, best of luck with those 2200, uh, as you put it, hormonally challenged young women at Spelman. And we will miss you greatly in Chicago. But I know you're going to do great things down there, too. What a wonderful chance. I hope it comes with a house and a pool for you in Atlanta. Uh, A house, not a pool, but. (laughs) (laughs) Well, someday you're going to be relaxing on some beach somewhere because you've earned it, ma'am. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much, Fran. And let's keep in touch. Okay. take care and we will see you all next week.